Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 32. We are continuing our study through the book of Exodus. We are, uh, in terms of chapters, about three-fourths of the way done, but in terms of like number of sermons, we are almost there. We will finish the book by the end of this month and move into a new series in July on things that the Bible doesn't say, like, um, you know, God helps those who help themselves and Godliness is next to cleanliness and things like that. We will jump into that in the you know in July. Um, but Exodus chapter thirty-two. While you're getting there, I, I haven't seen this in Tennessee since I've lived since I've lived here. But growing up in Georgia, if you spent any time in the woods, you would definitely at some point come across a like basketball-sized gray paper hornet's nest up in tree limbs. How many of you have ever seen those in trees? So a lot of you have ever seen them. Now, if you are a redneck like I am, in the wintertime, you would cut it down so you could hang it up in your room as decoration, right? So you might be a redneck if, well, me and my brother both have those still to this day hanging at our parents' house in our bedrooms. But you did not want to mess with them in the summertime. In the summertime, the horn, I mean, hornets are ferocious, uh, and you mess with them, mad as a hornet is a like legit uh, term because they are very, very ferocious. And so my parents warned me about hornet's nests repeatedly. Don't ever mess with a hornet's nest. It'll go bad. Don't mess with a hornet's nest. It will go bad. Don't mess with one. Don't mess with one, right? So when my buddy Matt and I found one not too far from my grandmother's house, we being, you know, good boys like we were, started to throw rocks at it, right? That's what you do. So we start throwing rocks at it, and we got them pretty stirred up. They're pretty angry, and so we realize we probably need to, you know, get out of here. And so I pick up a handful of rocks and decide, you know, hey, this is the last one I'm going to throw. We need to run. And wouldn't you know, it was the perfect shot, and it just ripped the hive in half. The whole thing fell off, and it was like a cloud of hornets came pouring out of that thing. And so, man, boom, we are gone, and thank God I was faster than him, so I got out of there, right? <clears throat> he got lit up um, about five times, and he's screaming, I'm just like, keep going, you know? And so we, we finally get to my grandmother's house, and we get inside, and, and, and we're safe, right? We got out of there, but he, he, he got tagged. The point of that whole story is, if I had listened to my parents' repeated warnings, not because they were killjoys, not because they were trying to keep me from having fun, but because they loved me. If I had listened to them, I would not have had to have a you know, fear-stricken sprint away from these things. My friend would not have had to you know, go through the pain of stinging repeatedly if we had just listened to the warning. This is how Exodus 32 serves us this morning. It is a warning to us against idolatry. It's the, the tale of the golden calf, right? It's the story of the Israelites and the golden calf. And it, the, the, the call to us this morning is heed the warning. Like, don't be like me with the hornets and not listen. Heed the warning so you don't go through that pain. And if you do find yourself in idolatry, then actually do be like me and run away. Run away. Because the sting, like unlike hornets, the sting of idolatry is far, far worse. It'll rob you of your joy. And if you don't run away, it can send you to hell. 
And so this morning, I want us to look at this warning, and in particular, I want us to pay, you know, pay attention to kind of three main things. I'm going to go ahead and give you your notes so you can write them down and then just kind of listen. But number one, we're going to talk about two ways that idolatry works. Two ways that idolatry often works in our lives. And when I say idolatry, I'm talking about anything that we put in front of God. That's what idolatry is. It's the violation of the first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And it's not just like literal golden calves or, or things like that. It's anything. It can be a spouse. It can be a child. It can be a sport. It can be school. It can be a job. It can be career. It can be money. It can be sex. It can be any. It can be food. It can be any, anything, many of which are good things. But anything that we put in front of God, that we value more highly than God, that's an idol. And so we're going to talk about, number one, two ways that idolatry works. Secondly, we'll talk about what idolatry does to us. What idolatry does to us. And then number three, the only hope for idolaters. All right, so that's where we're going. That's the outline. But to kind of just get us ready, let's, let's just read the first 20 verses of this narrative. Exodus 32. And so Moses has been up on the mountain for like 40 days. The people are freaking out. Where is he? What's going on? Is he dead? What's going on? And Moses has been on Mount Sinai. God has given him the Ten Commandments, like the literal tablets. And so chapter 32, verse 1, this is on page 72 in the black hardback Bibles around you, and it's on the screen. Read with me. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together an Aaron, uh, to Aaron, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now note that that is all caps. Whenever you see all caps of the word Lord in the Old Testament, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Tomorrow we shall hold a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that has overt sexual overtones. Cult prostitution, a lot of what the Canaanites did. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Like, this, this is hilarious to me. This is just the Lord, like, in His divine humor, even. You, you know how it is when, if you have kids and your, your child does something, you say to, you know, like, Sarah will be like, if one of my kids says, Sarah might be like, uh, Joe, your daughter did such and such, right? Not my daughter, your daughter. Well, that's almost like what we have here. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people, the whole time has been like my people, <laughs> Moses, your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. But then it gets very, very serious. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. 
They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, and that's an innuendo word, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that he had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And so it's not a pretty picture when you read Exodus 32. But again, it is heavily teaching, particularly against idolatry. And so there are two ways that idolatry works. That largely, two ways that largely are the ways we carry it out. And I'm not sure which of these two ways is actually what Israel did. You can kind of see both of them in how they went about their idolatry. But to kind of help us uh, get them in our mind and kind of think about it, I'll, I'll give two categories. Um, and I'm just kind of making these terms up. But traditional idolatry, that'll be the first one we'll talk about. And then we'll talk about baptized idolatry. All right? So traditional idolatry, the way it largely works is, is kind of, I mean, what we see here. They are fearful. They are scared. They have a fear. The fear is we have a lack of security. Moses is gone. We don't have anyone to protect us. He's 80 years old. Maybe he's dead. Well, I, don't, I don't know, but we need someone to protect us. Aaron, make us some new gods because we need someone to protect us. And if you give us some gods, maybe we'll have someone to protect us. And so Aaron does that. Behold, the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so I want you to notice the formula here. First, based upon their fear, they had something they wanted to escape from. So they defined for themselves, subconsciously problem, but this, this is how it works. They defined for themselves a hell. A hell they did not want to live in. A hell of 
a lack of security, a lack of protection. I don't want to live in this. And then they had a heaven uh, protection, security that they wanted. And so to get them from their self-defined hell into their self-defined heaven, they needed a savior. Make it some gods. This is how traditional idolatry often works. Like first you define for yourself a hell. And so as one guy put it for you, hell is being lonely. Hell is being single. Maybe hell is being overweight. Hell is being poor. Hell is being underappreciated. Hell is not having access to social media. Hell is not having your phone. That's your hell. So you define for yourself a hell, a hell that you cannot live in, a hell that you must get delivered from. And so to get you out of your hell and into your heaven, you need a savior, a false functional God. And so if I'm lonely, I need a girlfriend, I need a boyfriend, I need a spouse, they're my savior. If I'm poor, I need money, that's my savior. If pleasure is what I worship, then I'm going to do those things that I think will give me pleasure. That's my Savior. If, po- if it's politics that I worship, then I need my guy to win. That's my Savior or my girl. That's my Savior. If they just win, it'd be okay. If you want to have kids, you need to have kids. And the kids will get you out, your, out of your childless hell and into your child-filled heaven. If it's connection with friends, social media, selfies, TikTok that I want, then my phone becomes my savior. And when someone takes my phone away from me, I go crazy because I don't have my little idol. This is how traditional idolatry often works. And I think if you analyze your life and can actually be honest with yourself, which is hard for us to do, and only power, only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing conviction into our hearts, if you would analyze yourself, I think you, all of us, could state evidences of traditional idolatry in our lives, where we look to false functional gods to rescue us from little hells into heavens. And we then go about aligning our whole life and bending our life around worshiping, serving, doing whatever it takes to preserve that Savior in our life. And since, like Calvin says, the human heart is an idol factory, that means we can turn anything, most of which are good things, into idols. Sex, money, children, sports, schools, even church stuff like evangelism. Each of these and thousands others can transform themselves into idols that we pursue and long for and find our deepest satisfaction and value in. And without them, we tell ourselves, we're nothing. My life is meaningless. If I don't get this thing, if I don't accomplish this thing, if I don't have this thing, have this feeling, then my life is meaningless. My life is wasted. And so when inevitably our idols that we've set our hope and affections in let us down as they always will, then we're lost, anxious, depressed, I mean, some of y'all probably feeling some of that right now. 
something you've hoped for, something you've dreamed of, your dream hasn't come true. And you'd pushed all the eggs of your hope into that basket. And it didn't happen. You didn't get the job you wanted. Your kids didn't turn out the way you wanted them to. And you're broken. And then on top of that, because you said, I want this more than I want God. Like, yeah, I want God, but I want this. God's not happy. He's not pleased because you have chosen idolatry. You have chosen a false functional God. You have said, Jesus is not better. Like, I prefer creation to the Creator. That's traditional idolatry. And every single one of us in this room and watching online do that all the time. That's traditional idolatry. But we also do the second version all the time as well. And that's baptized idolatry. Baptized idolatry. We live this out all the time. And Jen Wilkin pointed out that this may be more akin to what the Israelites did in Exodus 32 because interestingly, they constructed a golden calf and not a golden bull. And somebody's like, well, why is it bovine at all? Well, just look at the culture of their day. When you look at the culture of their day, like they had just come out of Egypt where Apis, the bull god, is like one of the main gods worshipped. So that's what they've known. Where they are headed to, Canaan, Baal is worshipped. The bull is a symbol of Baal. So everything around them from pagan culture worships a, a, a bull, a cow. So that's where the bovine it comes out of culture. They took that from culture, but then look what they did. They softened it. They made it more palatable. It's not a big scary bull that can gore you and run over you. It's a cuddly little calf. And so, like, just kind of notice the pattern here again. They've taken pagan culture and they've combined it with, you know, the, the worshiping and the belief systems of the Israelites. Taken pagan culture, combined it with belief system, they baptize it. Friends, that's baptized idolatry. And we do that a lot. This is a form of idolatry that especially probably rampant in the church. Like we find this big thing out there in culture that people are worshiping, and we try to find a safer way, a baptized way, to worship the exact same thing. Like baptized idolatry is what's driving the affirmation in some churches of critical race theory. Taking this culture thing that everybody worships, trying to baptize it, slap a little Jesus on it, and hey, this is good. Same thing with the affirmation of the LGBTQ plus movement. Taking this thing out in culture, bringing it in, trying to throw a little Jesus on it, it's good. It's the same thing with the QAnon controversies or conspiracy theories. Taking this thing out in culture, pagan, anti-gospel, bringing it in, throw a little Jesus on it, it's good. All those things are doing the same thing. But maybe most pressing in our context, baptized idolatry, is what somebody in my family, we've adopted it, calls Wilco-itis. Wilco-itis. Williamson County. Upper middle class, entitled, keeping up with the Joneses, put all my hope in cars and money and, 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 and performing, like 
all this stuff, Wilco-itis. And so let me just caution parents particularly, and those that are watching online as well. If you make an idol out of a standard of living, out of a lifestyle, homes and cars and money, none of which are bad in the right context, but make horrible gods. But if you make an idol out of them, do not think that simply because you coated them with a veneer of biblical Christianity that your kids don't see right through you to what you actually worship. Like your life is proclaiming out loud, yeah, 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 Jesus, but what I really want is this. Yes, Jesus, but I really need this. And so repent. Turn, friend. Be, Joe, turn from that. Turn. We must all be on guard against the tendency the temptation that we all face to take something that the world worships and baptize it and now worship it as well. A pig is a pig whether you slap lipstick on it or not. And idolatry is idolatry whether you slap a little Jesus on it or not. And so baptized or traditional like me with the hornets, run away. Run away. Don't play. Don't play. Run away before you get stung. Because here's what the sting of idolatry actually does to you. All right, number two in your notes, what idolatry does to us. Five quick things. The first one is it corrupts us. Look at verse seven. God says, they have corrupted themselves. That is to say that their idolatry, which they told themselves would give them happiness and fulfillment and, and, and security and protection, is actually polluting, corrupting, distorting, perverting, and poisoning them. Like I think that's why Moses makes them drink ground-up gold in the water. He's saying it's an object like this is what you're doing to yourself. You are poisoning yourself. And so it corrupts you. Secondly, verse 8 says, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. So it corrupts them, verse 7. Then verse 8, it turns us from the path of life. Like the Ten Commandments are given to us not as a way, the law is given to us not as a way to save ourselves, but it's God's path of life. This is the way of life. This is the way of fulfillment. This is the way of satisfaction. I'm not being a killjoy. I'm not trying to keep you from things. I'm trying to keep you from getting stung. I know better than you do. I designed the world. They turned away from the path of life. And when we turn from the path of life, we turn to the inverse of that then. We're turning from life, we're turning to death. The path of death. And for a believer, like if, you know, you can't lose your salvation if you are in Christ. He puts you in his hand. No one can take you out of his hand, John 10. But if you try to turn from this path of life, it's like the proverbial you know, uh, shortcut that winds up wait, taking 10 times as long. And by the time you get through with it, your fenders have fallen off. All your tires are flat. You're running on your rims. You're overheating. Like, and you're nearly dead before you get back. This is what idolatry does to us. And all this adds up to the third thing, 
Idolatry shatters our fellowship with God. Idolatry shatters our fellowship with God. Like this is what Moses is teaching us when he throws the Ten Commandments down, the two tablets. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. He's, I mean, it's an it's a object lesson. This is what you're doing. You're taking what God has said. This is the way of life. This is the way um, you know, for fulfillment in life. This is a way, life that pleases me. And you're just saying, I don't care. Boom, shatter the thing. That's what idolatry is. That's what we're doing. Fourthly, idolatry blinds us to our ridiculousness. It blinds us to our sin and our ridiculousness. Look at verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. Like, and then notice, before we even get to the ridiculous, notice the first thing that Aaron does here. He tries to blame shift. Moses, you know these guys. They are, they are loco. They, they have caused you nothing but pain and grumbling the whole time. It's their fault. It's not my fault. It's their fault. And this is as old, this blame shifting is as old as the Garden of Eden. God comes to Adam. Adam, what did you do? It's the woman who you gave to me. Eve's like, it's the snake. We do this all the time. We blame shift. It's not my fault. Here's the reason. Here are all these reasons. And actually, it's your fault. You did this. Like, we don't want to own it. It just further shows our sinfulness, our ridiculousness. We will not even own up to our part. We want to convince ourselves that we're okay, others are to blame, and so we rationalize, well, maybe this isn't the best thing in the world, but if you knew what he did to me or what she did to me, then you'd understand why I'm doing this to them. But here's the reality. God doesn't understand you ever sinning. He doesn't, like, oh, that's okay. Like, listen, here's the, you know this, you know this thing, but I'm going to state it. In this life, you will be sinned against. You will be. And most, most often, you'll be sinned against by your family. Most often. Because, I mean, just proximity, right? Not because they're inherently more evil, but just proximity. And you can't control they're sinning against you. But you can control and are called to control how you respond to their sinning against you. And if you respond sin with sin and expect God to be good with that, like you're wrong. God is never like, oh yeah, well, you had no other chance, no other choice. What could you do? They sinned. You've got to reciprocate. You've got to go back at them. Like that's how the world works. But that's not how it works in the kingdom. That is not how a Christian carries out his life. We don't tit for tat. We don't respond to sin with sin. And you can't then blank, well, I wouldn't have done this if they hadn't have done this. So actually it's their fault. No, you chose to respond to their sin with more sin. You chose that. So you cannot blame shift that. You own it, you confess it, you repent it, you turn 
from it. But this is what we a lot of times do in our sinful selves. We blame shift, like Aaron. And if we don't do that, when we do the other thing that Aaron does, which is we try to justify or excuse it away, even if it's absolutely ludicrous and ridiculous. I mean, look at what Aaron does next. He, verse 22, we'll pick it up there again. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came the calf. Right? I mean, it's absolutely absurd. But I'm not sure that Aaron knows he's lying. Like, it is absolutely absurd, but in 13 years of ministry, I've sat across the table from people who have said absolutely absurd things that make no sense, cannot possibly be true, like a calf coming out of fire. And they fully believe it. Things that just are not even close to reality or logic, yet in their minds they've convinced themselves of a false narrative and they believe it. And here's the way it happens a lot of times. They hit the replay button on something in their life, some argument, some, uh, you, you know, relational difficulty they've hit the replay on it so many times across so many years bitterness has set up it's 10 years removed and now what they remember about that event is not even close to what actually happened because it's been so imbibed with their own like filling in the blanks assuming the worst about the person assuming their motives assuming all that stuff and so now what they believe is a complete fabrication it's not even close to the truth. Yet they believe it as if, I mean, that is how it happened. They rehearsed it over and over and over and over and over. And that's not what happened. But that's what they believe. But here's the lie. I mean, here's the deal. It's still a lie, regardless of whether or not you believe it. Like, truth is truth, regardless of who speaks it. And a lie is a lie, regardless of who speaks it. Like, facts are our friends. And so let me just ask you, are you an expert at excusing away your sin? And I'm not asking heads to move, but I hope internally every single one of us is nodding. If you're not, you're a liar. We're all experts at excusing our sin. We want to be okay. I'm all right. I'm not that bad. And friend, with that attitude, you're actually fighting against yourself. Humble yourself to receive correction. And if you're blind, you need someone to help you see. This is the importance of having community around you. Friends who know you and can say, now brother, no sister. Idolatry blinds us 
to our sin and to our ridiculousness. And then the fifth thing that it does, and the biggest one, the biggest one, idolatry condemns us. Idolatry condemns us. Look at verse 7 again. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And so I know it is not PC, but God's response to idolatry is wrath. W-R-A-T-H, wrath. He is angry about idolatry. And it makes sense if you think about it, like, Think back over the last several weeks, uh, we spent a lot of time, just like big picture view of the book for a minute, a lot of time in chapters 20 through 24, because what's happening there is that is where God is making a covenant with His people. They are making pledges to one another. They are making vows to one another. The, the, the people of Israel put the ring on, you know, with this ring, I, the wed. I'm, they make vows to one another. They choose one another. And here they are, chapter 32, just a couple of weeks later, they're on the honeymoon, and the bride is sleeping with the dude she just met. That's idolatry. That's what's happening here. That's what they're doing. And God, like any husband, isn't okay with that. And so he's like, uh, hey Moses, you're going to want to let me alone for a minute because I'll keep my promise to Abraham. I will make a great nation. I'm going to do it through you, but I'm done with these fools. I'm going to consume them. This is the wrath of God. He hates sin. He hates idolatry. He hates when we put things in front of Him. And this is because He is a good and loving and right, holy God. If He was indifferent to sin, indifferent to injustice and oppression and brutality and rape and murder and greed, and He's just like, ah, it's not a big deal. He would not be a good God. But because He is a good God, He has anger when His good creation is harmed. And so understand, the real problem of idolatry isn't simply that it makes matters worse for you and me and it corrupts us and it poisons us and it blinds us. The real problem of sin and idolatry in our hearts is that we must answer to an infinitely holy God who will judge and condemn us justly in His righteous wrath. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so we need to get to safety before it's too late. We need to run away from our idolatry. We need to run away from the hornet's nest that will sting us to death. And so what hope is there if we're condemned? 
Number three in your notes. What is the only hope for idolaters like me? We need someone who will go between the judgment of God and us. Who will plead our case, bear our condemnation. And amazingly, Moses tries to do this for the people. It's a picture for us. But look what Moses tries to do. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And there's no mention of anything to do with sacrifice here. Just I can make atonement for your sin. And so keep watching. Look at verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, it kind of stops. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses tries to go up the mountain and and do what he's unable to do, pay for the sins of Israel. He goes and he pleads, please don't blot them out. Remember your covenant. Remember your servants. Blot me out instead. Let the judgment fall on me, not on them. If justice must be satisfied, then let me bear the brunt of your condemnation. Only let your people live. And again, this is a picture like just as the tabernacle. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. And just as the whole sacrificial system points forward to the coming of Jesus, so Moses going up the mountain to make atonement, to make a way for them to be justified before God, have their sin atoned for, is a picture of the coming of Jesus. But Moses can't do it because he's merely a man. He's a sinner, just like you and I. He can't make atonement. We need a better Moses. We need a better intercessor. We need a better mediator. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ who did come into this world and is the go-between holy God and sinful man. He did come into this world and said of Himself, Lord, blot me out, but let my people live. And the Lord poured out His wrath on the Son, listen, so that He might pour out His grace and mercy on you and me. God is just and oh so tender and so patient and so kind and so loving and so Forgiving. I mean, next week we're going to get to like the highlight verse of the entire book, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord is merciful and good, abounding in steadfast love. And so the Lord relented here because of Jesus who would come. And when we see how the Lord relents of the condemnation that you and I deserve because of Jesus. And what Jesus has done for sinners, for people like you and me, idolatrous rebels like me. When you see that, you discover the one that my heart was made to know and love. 
And like all the idols that I want to, you know, that I pursue, they seem to promise what only Jesus can deliver. It, it, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sermon written years ago, preached years ago by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. You can look it up on the internet. Read it. I encourage you. Read it. I should have put it as a resource. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. How do you get rid of an idol? You have a greater affection. You have an expulsive power of something even greater than that. And that greater is Christ. When you see what He has done for you, when you recognize what you deserve, what He's given you, and how He adopts you into His family, and it does not treat you as a, as a, you know, a peon who just be thankful that I saved you, but no, you are a brother, you are a son of the Father, you are loved, you are delighted in, you are sung over. When you see this, you begin to realize that all those idols are just stuff. This is who my heart desires. This is the only one who could ever fulfill me. And He is the only one who's deserving of all honor and worth and glory and power and might. When that happens, all this stuff just becomes stuff again. Stuff you can delight in and be happy about. But it's not a God. It's not an idol. And we don't have to keep running on the bankrupt treadmill of looking for fulfillment in leaky cisterns. Being dogs that just return to their vomit, we've been set free. For freedom you've been set free, Galatians tells us. Jesus has rescued us from our sin, from our idols, from our blindness, and can now fill our souls with satisfaction and purpose and meaning that comes from Him and Him alone. And so we need to hear the warning this morning. Don't play with idols. You will get stung. If you're playing with idols right now, run away. Run away. And we need to also remember and admit, like not blame shift, not justify, but admit I'm an idolater. And I am a sinner. And my sins, they are many. But His mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, there aren't words to capture the surprise of the depth of your love, the surprise of the depth of your kindness and grace to us in Christ. What we deserve and what you give over and over and over and over without end. And just as at the beach this week, Waves just keep coming in, just keep coming in, just keep coming in. And that is your grace. They just keep crashing over us. And it just keeps crashing over us and crashing over us and crashing over us with no wind. This is your grace. This is your mercy. This is your tender care and affection that we do not deserve. 
And so, Lord, we praise you for grace. Even as we confess our continued... We love to play with idols. And so, Father, help us. Give us sight to see. Holy Spirit, bring conviction to those of us in this room who are yours and have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Bring conviction for us to see our idols and put them to death, to run away, and to not dabble with them, to not be fooled, to not baptize idols and say, oh, it's good because it's Jesus-like. And then, Father, for those in this room who do not yet know you, Father, I pray that they would recognize that this, what we're speaking of, this is true of every single person. Everybody's an idolater, and everybody needs salvation. So would you cause them to turn to you? If not today, then Lord, be a pebble in their shoe that bothers them till they cannot avoid it anymore. Have your own way in us. Convict us, change us, and then stir our affections that, yes, our sins, they are many. But your mercy is more. In Jesus' name, amen.